and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on the show, we have an interview with Tone Dreesen. He's an architect here in Ottawa whose writing frequently appears in the Ottawa Citizen, where he provides valuable insight and explanations about issues that arise in our growing city, from building codes to bylaws. Tone is a hybrid of advocate and educator, advocating for strong and accessible design and taking big concepts and packaging them up into understandable ideas. And he's here today to tell us why architecture matters. And Emma Williams is in conversation with Dr. Jordan Mallon, a paleontologist from the Canadian Museum of Nature. He's here to talk about all things dinosaurs. Dr. Mallon explains why we can find dinosaur remains in Alberta, the best ways to get fossils out of the ground, and how they determine whether a dinosaur had skin or feathers. But first, it's time for headlines. Today, reading headlines, we have Fulcrum staff writers, Gabrielle Musichka and Shaley Shaw. Welcome to the broadcast. The University of Ottawa's Health and Wellness Advisor presented their annual progress report on mental health and wellness at the latest Senate meeting. The report is part of the mandate that began with the President's Advisory Committee on Mental Health and Wellness in 2020. The committee was created after a significantly difficult year for students' mental health. The report updates staff, students, and faculty on the changes that were made in the last year. More funding has been allocated to hire more counselors as resources for students, but some find the future funding plans to be vague. Professors now have a guidebook that would provide them with procedures and resources if students come to them with mental health concerns. Statistics Canada's first survey of urban green spaces shows that cities across the country are getting grayer and browner rather than greener. Using satellite imagery, Statistics Canada was able to estimate the amount of green space in Canadian cities, including parks, urban trees, as well as backyards and lawns. Over 30 urban centers of various sizes across the country were considered, and researchers compared satellite images from 2001, 2011, and 2019. The results showed that about three-quarters of large and medium-sized cities were less green in 2019 than they had been about 20 years earlier. Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton all lost green space. Saskatoon and Regina were one of the few that gained. Most Canadians live in cities, and the research can help governments figure out how their policies are affecting the trees and grass that live alongside the urban concrete and asphalt. Right now, by googling Geomaps Ottawa, you can see aerial pictures of the city since 1972 and see exactly how we went from green to brown to grey across the Ottawa Valley. The Freedom Convoy made their way to Ottawa this past Friday. Protesting vaccine mandates and lockdowns, the demonstrations have taken place on Parliament Hill and throughout downtown. Businesses around the area have been severely affected by the demonstrations. The Rideau Centre has been closed since last Saturday and will remain closed until this coming Sunday on February 6th. Many other businesses have also had to close their doors for similar reasons, adding to the concerns and frustrations local residents have had with excessive noise, public disturbances, and safety concerns to the city. 
In light of the protest, the University of Ottawa Student Union pushed the university to delay its return to in-person learning. However, the return went as planned despite the demonstrations in the core. North Korea confirmed on January 24th that it successfully test-launched an intermediate-range ballistic missile capable of reaching the United States territory of Guam. The Hwasong-12 missile was aimed at selectively evaluating the missile being produced and deployed and verify its overall accuracy. The reported flight details make it the most powerful missile North Korea has tested since 2017, when the country launched Hwasong-12 and longer-range missiles in a torrid run of weapons firings to acquire an ability to launch nuclear strikes on United States military bases in North Asia, the Pacific, and America. South Korean President Moon Jae-in said Sunday's missile launch brought North Korea to the brink of breaking its 2018 self-imposed weapons test moratorium. Washington plans to respond to demonstrate its commitment to its allies' security in the region. The University of Ottawa Student Union's general election nomination period has begun and will run until February 12th. The general election will seek to elect new members for four different administrative bodies. These are the Student Union's Executive Committee, the Board of Directors, as well as the U of O's Senate and Board of Governors. All positions on the Student Union Executive Committee, the Board of Directors, and the University Senate are open. However, for the University's Board of Governors, only one seat is available as students are elected to a two-year term. Candidacy forms can be submitted to the Director of the General Election through email. The election will be held online between March 9th and 11th. A sixth grader in Oklahoma is being honored for his heroism after saving a choking classmate and rescuing a woman from a house fire in the same day. 11-year-old Davon Johnson was named an honorary member of the Sheriff's Office and Police Force and recognized by the Board of Education in his hometown of Muskogee. After noticing a classmate choking on the cap of his water bottle, Johnson performed the Heimlich Maneuver, something he had learned on YouTube and encouraged others to learn as well. Later that same day, Johnson saved a woman from a burning house. He said he saw her with her walker on her porch and crossed the street to help her get into her truck and leave. Johnson is called a kind soul and a dual hero by parents, teachers, and students alike for his actions. Students return to in-person and bimodal learning this week. Anyone returning to campus will be required to have two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. The University of Ottawa Student Union and the Association of Part-Time Professors for the University of Ottawa have called on the university to implement a three-dose vaccine mandate. Despite the concerns, the university has yet to implement an updated mandate. The City of Ottawa is full of history, with prolific buildings that define the nation, from our Parliament buildings to many of the country's top museums. There's the National Art Gallery and even the University of Ottawa. In addition to the iconic structures of the past which continue to stand tall, the City of Ottawa is still growing. As a hotbed for development, with continuously changing attitudes for how we should approach building design, Tone Driesen is a local architect whose advocacy and writing for good building design frequently appears in the Ottawa Citizen. He's here to tell us why architecture matters. Please welcome to the show, Tone Driesen. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, Tone. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Do we have enough space in this city to accommodate everyone? Yes. Yes, I think we do. I think we definitely do. I think that, you know, when we think about our city and the way we plan it, 
and the way we think about where people want to live, we definitely have enough space. We have enough buildings, we have enough land, we have invested billions in a transit system that we hope will eventually continue to work and be reliable that we expect it to. And I think when we think about where those neighborhoods are, are and that are going to be served by not only LRT, but existing bus service, and that are ideal places for 15-minute walkable, accessible communities, I definitely think we have place for, for everyone we want to see our city grow into. And are we on the right track? That's a difficult one. I think, I think we, we try to be on the right track, but I think we shoot ourselves in the foot on a number of fronts. And, and one of those is the way we, we think about our planning processes. We think about planning at sort of an aspirational level, like our new official plan, but then shoot ourselves in the foot with some last minute changes or regulations. We become very aspirational about wanting to have, for example, Vanier rebuilt investment in the community and small businesses. And then we create a structure by which we provide funding to a car dealership that followed all the rules, but isn't really what we expected and what we should be incentivizing instead. And I'm not saying that the car dealership was wrong, but what we should be incentivizing is the, uh, is the creation of, of more housing affordability small grocery stores, places for small businesses to thrive. And we can choose to incentivize that or not. And that becomes a choice and that choice is political. And I think that unfortunately, because of our political structure, we don't have the right, it's not that we know the right people in a leadership place, but we don't have the right majority who cares enough about the intersection of social, physical, mental health, climate change, and planning and architecture to make the right decisions. What is infill and how does it factor into the current design trends around Ottawa right now? Well, so a good example of infill would be, um, say, something like Kirkwood Avenue, where you have maybe an old school or an old, an old building. Maybe it's you know, decrepit, maybe it's fallen apart. Maybe it's an old house that you know has evolved over time and it's not in good condition and it's not really worth keeping. In a sense, I mean, the most sustainable building is the one that already exists, but you know, maybe it's just suffered over time and it's not really worth hanging on to. So infill would be tearing that down and putting something new in its place that improves or filling in the gap between existing buildings. So say a, a small, I don't know, a small commercial building that has a huge surface parking lot, well, you put something in the parking lot instead. And what you're doing is you're filling in the gap in, in between existing buildings or in a neighborhood. And the real advantage of this is, you know, the street is already there. The sewers, the gas line, the electrical service, the transit, the bicycle lanes, these things are all, are all already there. And so you're not imposing a new cost. And so if you said, you know, take a site like Kirkwood Avenue, where you might have, uh, you know, a nice space for a five or six story building and maybe say 50 apartments. Well, if you put those 50 apartments in that space, you're already using your existing infrastructure. We've already paid for that. If you instead took those 50 apartments and you built them in a field out in the middle of nowhere, 
Well, you're now having to drive sewers out there. You're having to bring sidewalks and roads and parking and transit. And of course, you know, who, when you think about the type of housing, you know, it, it's, if you're going to build a, in a field out in the middle of nowhere, it's probably not going to be apartment buildings. They're going to be houses. And then that drives more costs, more land use. And, and so there's a place in our market for expanding additional single family and townhouses in our, in our growth, but there's also a place for infill. Now, uh, you recently had an article come out in the Ottawa Citizen that talked about uh, four-story limits on housing within the core is going to drive up affordability. It's going to make things much more difficult. Could you just speak to that? So if you think about a four-story building, a four-story building uh, by code requires some basic things like it needs, say it's a four-story apartment building, it needs to have an elevator because it, the code requires it to be accessible. It requires a sprinkler system. If it's an apartment building like that, it's probably going to have, more likely than not, it's going to have you know, a main corridor with units on both sides of the hallway. And that corridor needs to have an air handling system and ventilation and so forth. You're going to bring a, a boiler into the building to provide heating to the to the building, to the units. So there's a bunch of services that are going to go into that. And the cost of, say, building a sprinkler system is in the is the is the main infrastructure to build bring that in. There's an incremental cost to go from four stories to five stories, but it's not like it's linear. You know, let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars. Let's just say, for example, it's a hundred thousand dollars for a sprinkler system for four floors, well, that's not $25,000 per floor. So adding a floor doesn't add 25 grand. It might be marginally more because you're already there. You already have the pipes. You already have the systems. You already have the trades. You're already, you're already doing all of that work. So the cost at four stories broken out per unit is much more for all of those things than it is for five stories or six stories. And, and, and when you're looking at a building that is a sort of a four-story building versus a six-story building, well, a six-story building is much cheaper to build per unit than a four-story building. And, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, that's the developer's problem, but that's the public's problem because the, the developer is going to plan to build these units and sell them or rent them at a, at a cost. So the net cost, that cost gets passed on to the end user, whether it's a tenant or a buyer. And when you then layer on other things like planning applications and parking and sort of development charges and all these other costs, that drives up the cost of the, uh, of the, of the finished product, the, the apartment, to the end user. And those costs are the same, whether it's four stories or six stories. So... In the end, a six-story building is cheaper per unit to build than four stories. And the frustrating part is that when that decision got made, it was made without thinking through all of the ramifications of that decision. You know, we can build six-story mass timber buildings that are cheaper to build, that are better quality, that are faster to build when we have that kind of scale, when we have the scale of six stories. But when we do that at four stories, it doesn't work. The economics just aren't there. And so building four stories won't happen, likely won't happen, unless it's for really expensive luxury units. And the result is that people who want to build on that land will hold on to it until the official plans 
you know, waiting period is over. And then they're going to apply to the city for eight stories or 10 stories or 12 stories under the expectation that it's going to take two years and be a planning fight. And we end up with a series of spot zoned locations. And that's really frustrating because we're trying to get away from that and have a more cohesive overall approach to planning and design in the city. Right. And what would spot zone applications be? Well, a spot zoning would be, uh, say, for example, you take one address on on Kirkwood and it's zoned for four stories. And you go and apply for 12. So that site gets 12 and then the neighbor is still four. So then three or four doors down the street, somebody says, well, they got 12. I'm, I want 12. But, you know, I'm going to apply for 18 because it's going to take me longer. So they get compromised at 14. And then you get a 14 story building sort of over here and you get you know, a couple of low rise to three story in the middle, and then you get the sort of tower that pops up. And then once you have a couple of towers like that, there's precedent and people say, well, they got 12 and the other guy got 14. I'm pretty reasonable to ask for eight. And so you get the sort of hodgepodge of mishmash of different scales and each one is treated individually. And, and the challenge in the public interest side of this is the neighborhood says, well, we expected four stories. So we're going to fight the guy for 12. And then they get all their energy together and they fundraise and have, you know, bake sales and do all these things to raise money to fight this, you know, horrible, evil developer who wants 12 stories. And then that gets compromised. And so they lose and, you know, their, you know, their energy is gone. And then someone else comes in at 14 and they have to start all over. So it ends up being fighting for each individual property one-on-one, as opposed to the city sort of at a more blanket level saying, look, We have an official plan goal of housing affordability. We declared a housing crisis. We want to see more housing built within the infill areas in the core. Here's a good example, six stories. Everybody along this strip is allowed to build six stories. And if if we tackle planning reform, then that planning process is done in two months, three months. It's as of right. You come in six stories, tick the boxes, and you're out of the door. So in regards to the new civic hospital that's being built on the central experimental farm, and it's going to be huge with the province promising more beds, is this the right approach to the hospital? Is this what we need in the city right now? My personal feeling is no. I think it's the wrong site. I think it's, it's, I think it's questionable what we're doing. Do we need a new civic hospital? Yes, I definitely think we do. The civic hospital is very old. It has heritage buildings. It's been added onto and glommed onto and renovated in bits and pieces over the years. And a lot of it is just as old. That said, we've also made hundreds of millions of dollars in investment in the Heart Institute and other aspects of the civic hospital. And those are aspects that have no my understanding is have no schedule for relocation. So we're going to end up with sort of two campuses or, you know, the, the relocation of the Heart Institute is decades away because, you know, that's, that's just the timeline and we've made that investment. So is the new location the right spot for it? My opinion is no. It's uh, geologically unstable. It's right next to prime heritage landscape. It's a key part of our green space and our social infrastructure. And it really does a disservice to the people of Ottawa who have spent billions of dollars on an LRT system that already has a stop at Tunney's Pasture. And it would be a much better location at Tunney's. And and so I I don't think that the right 
location is is there. In terms of the number of beds, so I'm not a hospital planner or or whatever, but you know I, I think that uh, what we have to think about on balance is I think we're going for something like 500 beds to 600 beds. We're gaining something in the order of about 100 beds, and that's probably reasonable. Like we need, we're a growing city. Now, is that enough beds for our hospital, for our hospital network for the next 40 years? Probably not. We will probably need to expand other hospitals and whether that's significant expansion of the Queensway Carlton or construction of an entirely new hospital in the South End, I don't know, but I think that we do need a new hospital and we need to start fresh. Any any thoughts on the approach that other cities take uh, to hospital design around the world? Is there a model that works more successfully in some places that could maybe help us here? Well, I think specifically, that's a hard question to answer because I'm not a hospital architect, but I do think that there are precedents, there are good examples, you know, for the way we approach design as a whole. And I would look to places like Helsinki, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, in the way that they approach design as a whole. And what we really have to think about is the, the goal of the hospital is about care and about that continuum of care so that you're not going to the hospital and then leaving and you never come back. It's that you're going to the hospital and there's and there's a sense of care. There's transition from a hospital to rehab, to long-term care, to, to jobs, to training. There's all these things that are sort of interconnected in the way we need to design a hospital as a community. And that is, and I'm not saying that we don't do that today, but it's something I think we need to think about and we need to strengthen. We need to design a 21st century hospital, not a 20th century one. The other aspect I think is the way we we pay for our hospitals in Ontario is a fundamentally broken system because we effectively sole source the design and construction to only a couple of firms. So anyone with creative ideas about how to construct a hospital never gets a chance to share their vision because it's all driven by a profit-centered motive to construct hospitals for through the private sector that costs more, takes longer, and reduces quality at the end. How do you feel about the state of architecture overall in the city right now? Not great. Um, I think it's really frustrating for a lot of people. And, and I think we see that in, the, in, the, in a couple of different ways. One is that we, we as a society, as a city, we don't make good investments. We'll spend money on, on, on a building, but not pay for its maintenance. And we don't fund its maintenance properly. So we end up you know, with a building that fairly quickly looks worn around the edges, doesn't perform, leaks, and then quickly over time sort of band-aid things together. So we have billions of dollars in physical infrastructure that we're essentially allowing to crumble because we can't be bothered to maintain it properly. And that's, and that's frustrating because a lot of that is quite beautiful, well-designed architecture and well-designed buildings. So we don't take care of it properly. And related to that is the way we, we design new buildings. Our focus is on the cheapest. Our focus is on the least expensive. Our focus is on not taking any risks and hiring people who are prepared to meet the minimum standard of the RFP and not be as creative as they could be. And so the people who respond to those requests for proposal are ones who are going to do the same thing over and over again because it avoids risk because they did that last time 
And the management of the project through the city isn't fantastic. It's about minimizing risk, not sort of striving for excellence. And we see that in things like pedestrian overpasses over the highway. They all look the same. They're not creative. They're not exciting. They're not gateways. They all kind of look the same. And that's that's kind of disappointing when you think about, you know, tourists coming to Ottawa, they drive through and what's the first thing they see? Well, the same overpass they see anywhere else, the same highway barricade they see anywhere else. There's no creativity to that. And I think then in the private sector, because the way the development model works, we have a very small pool of people who are doing the big buildings, a very small number of people who are both paying for and delivering those big buildings. And the opportunity for public engagement in design, for education on design, for the kind of lasting, enduring quality that we want to see is kind of diminished because there's only so many people in that game. And I think we can really change that if we change our thinking about the public's role in in architecture. You've previously argued for the city to, to adopt a city architect. Are there other cities that have this position and how exactly would that work? So Edmonton is probably the best example. A city architect in Edmonton has a responsibility for the procurement of public buildings. And they not only set a standard for what service and quality is, but they also advocate and educate on the part of of that architect to to the city to say, this is a good thing. This is why we want to do something interesting. And it's about not only pushing the architect to do their best, but also pushing the public to demand better architecture. Another good example is the state architect in Ireland. There is, and it's not when I say state architects and not just one person, but is sort of a group, uh, the, the Ministry of Architecture, if you will. They're responsible for not only procuring good buildings and pushing the architecture to be its best, but also for understanding what the maintenance requirements are of public buildings and advocating for setting good budgets for those buildings to be maintained properly so that they last and they have enduring quality. What's interesting, I think, in the in the state architect in Ireland is also that they're responsible for the quality of public housing. So you have architecture leading the design and quality of really important things like social housing, public buildings, public art, you're really pushing that agenda that really helps create a better, more beautiful, more equitable city. And is there any final words that you have? I guess maybe a final word would be that architecture matters. It impacts and it affects almost every facet of uh, the lives of Canadians. You know, urban planning, design, lighting, architectural lighting, the the creation of space, how we feel about a space, whether we feel welcomed, whether we feel our spirits are lifted in a space. This is affected by architecture. At some level, architecture affects every one of us. And we as Canadians don't really appreciate or understand how important that is. And I would hope that one of our one of the goals of, of of my life is to make more people aware of the role architecture can play in their lives and uh, to help people understand how important it is so that we value not only what we design and build, but how we feel about it and celebrate that architecture as contributing positively to our lives. Tone, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure.
Emma Williams is our science editor. She joins me now. Hi, Emma. Hi, Damien. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And what's new in science this week? So this week I spoke with Jordan Mallon, who's a paleoecologist at the Nature Museum here in Ottawa. And what did you talk about? So we had a casual conversation about dinosaurs, why they're found in Alberta, and what to expect at a dig. Awesome. I can't wait to hear it. Enjoy. Yep. Uh, my name is Dr. Jordan Mallon. You were saying that your work is mainly in Alberta and like on the border of Saskatchewan. So does the fact that like Alberta is very close to like the oil sands, does that have anything to do with like why there are dinosaurs found there or are they just like not related at all? Are the thought is the fact that we find dinosaurs in Alberta related to, to the oil sands? That's yes. what you're asking me? Yes. No. Okay. No. Not directly, I would say. Okay. So the reason why we find dinosaurs commonly in Alberta is the fact that the rocks in which they are preserved were laid down at the end of the Cretaceous period, between 75 and 66 million years ago. And in Canada at that time, well, Canada at that time was divided north-south by a shallow seaway called the Western Interior Seaway. If you go to Manitoba and look at rocks of the same age, you're under the sea. And so the rocks there are marine. They preserve marine reptiles and fishes and diving birds and stuff like that. But if you go to rocks the very same age, a little further west in Alberta and Saskatchewan, that's where you find the dinosaurs. So again, 75 million years ago, you've got this shallow seaway dividing North America in half. And further to the west are the young Rocky Mountains lifting up. So the Rocky Mountains are, are growing. They're shedding their sediment down onto the floodplains that basically occupied the space between the Rockies and that shallow seaway. And so you've got all this runoff going into the seaway, sediment runoff, and you've got lots of, you know, meandering rivers. And these dinosaurs are basically living along this coastline, as it were, living and dying. And with all that sediment flushing through the system, you're rapidly building up. Uh, well, you've got a perfect environment to, to bury a dinosaur carcass. And so that's really the the sort of special conditions that were around at that time that allowed dinosaurs to preserve to be preserved so well there in ontario and quebec there were dinosaurs here at that time too the problem is is that the glaciers have scraped away all of the rock that would have once contained those dinosaurs and so here all we have is basically the canadian shield which are rocks that predate even the origins of life. <laughs> um, so we have no hope of finding a dinosaur here. Do you ever foresee a way to sort of streamline the way you find dinosaurs, or is it just always going to be the way that, that it's done? Um, I think it's going to be the way it's always been done. <laughs> okay. You know, the only... Unless they invent some kind of X-ray technology, like 
Google Glass and you can put on a pair of sunglasses and see through the ground, which I don't think that technology is forthcoming anytime soon. You know, there are there are things like ground penetrating radar that you could use possibly to find fossils in the ground, but that's expensive technology. And it's not easy to carry around. It is much more efficient cost-wise, energy-wise, and arguably time-wise to get out there and look for yourself. So I don't see that change. I don't see how dinosaurs are collected changing anytime soon. And I, and I have no issue with that. I think the way we do things now is just fine. <laughs> um, but the way in which we study those fossils once we get them out of the ground, that has changed and is changing. And uh, I'm excited about that aspect of research. Yeah. I just wanted you to define paleoecology for me. Paleoecology is simply ecology of the past. Okay. So learning about trying to tell what organisms are doing in their environments. Okay. But the paleo prefix just means ancient, oh. right? So ancient <laughs> ecology, and it's nothing like modern ecology. They're, they're two very separate things. They, they seek to answer broadly overlapping questions, I would say, but we have, we, we have very different toolkits. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, just, very, you know, Whereas you can go out, you know, if I wanted to study, let's say, the feeding habits of an impala, I could go out and radio track them and find them feeding in place. And I could root through their dung to figure out what they were eating. And I could take video of them. And mm -hmm. obviously, you can't do that with the dinosaur. And so our methods are, are much less, are, are much more indirect, I would say. So we, again, we have to look at their tooth where if you're lucky, you might find a specimen that has gut contents preserved where you can actually see what they ate and there are a handful of specimens like that in the world but they're exceedingly rare and we don't we certainly don't rely on them you know you can look at you can also look at fossil feces there are lots of fossil feces of dinosaurs and you can tell what the animal was eating maybe by dissecting them but then being able to say you know this species created this feces is a much harder thing to do. So we don't rely on that a whole lot either. At least I don't. <laughs> but yeah, it's paleoecology is just the idea of trying to reconstruct what an organism or group of organisms were doing within their environment at the time they were alive. I'm wondering then if we can go, you did mention that you, before COVID, you, you did do some field work. So I'm wondering if you could maybe go through what, what that looks like. You know, you get on the field, what, what do you do? How do you know where you want to go? Yeah. Um, the answer is that it depends. Um, one, there's one field area that I work quite regularly in. Um, it's near a village called Hilda in, in Alberta, right on the border with Saskatchewan. Um, and if you go along the South Saskatchewan River that that flows along that way, just north of Medicine Hat, you get vast stretches of badlands. And over the years, there have been fossils pulled out of those badlands. 
those rocks date, they're the same age as the rocks we find further west in Dinosaur Provincial Park. Um, but no one had ever systematically worked that area. No one returned year after year after year to collect from there. So I got put onto that area early in my research career. I knew to go there because fossils had been found there before. But um, again, the area hadn't been worked systematically. So, so yeah, as far as finding fossils, it's just a matter of having boots on the ground and walking along, you know, with uh, a sharp eye. You're out there for days and weeks on end. And, uh, you know, if you're lucky, maybe you'll find a little trail of eroded bone and you can follow it along. And, you know, if the good Lord is on your side, you will see a big tibia eroding out of the hillside or something like that, you know. And then, okay. uh, and then the idea is you dig in after it. And more often than not, it's nothing. It peters out and it's, it's terribly uninteresting and you don't, you know, you, you sort of chalk it up as a loss and move on. But in some cases, uh, you can get pretty lucky. So, for example, back in, I guess it was 2015 or 2014 or so, I found the skull of a horned dinosaur, mm -hmm. uh, Chasmosaurus, which are quite rare as far as dinosaur fossils go. And we took a couple of years to dig it up. Ultimately, we had to get it out of the Badlands with a helicopter, which was a lot of fun. It was a first for me. But yeah, the way we hunt for fossils now is the same way, you know, they hunted for fossils 100 years ago, which is walking through the Badlands very carefully. <laughs> you know, despite all the technological advances that there are in the world today, we don't use that technology a whole lot when it comes to looking for fossils. Having said that, when it comes to time to excavate them or to research them, you know, we use helicopters now sometimes and we stick them under, uh, you know, x-rays and take CT scans of them. That's all changed, but the actual looking for them is, is the same, I would say. Okay, so when you discovered that new species, the horned, what is it, the horned dinosaur? Yeah, Spiclipius, it was called. Yes. A tongue twister. Yeah, it is. Um, Sorry for that. That's okay. How did you, like, in the picture where you kind of, like, reconstruct its body, how can you, how do scientists reconstruct their body just from, you know, bones, you know? How did they know that this had scales and this one had feathers? And Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, early in the days of learning about and finding dinosaurs you know we're talking about the victorian era um all we had to go on were a handful of bones we had no inkling of what these dinosaurs even looked like and so to look at those early sort of guessworks you can see some of the early artwork of dinosaurs they were way off and it was only in collecting more and more fossils over the coming decades and centuries now that we were able to get a better idea of what these dinosaurs looked like. So we can get a general idea of, of their build, you know, were they quadrupedal or did they stand on their back legs just based on the skeleton alone? You know, something like Tyrannosaurus rex with these big long hind legs and these very dinky little forearms, you know, 
you can you can tell immediately that, that was a bipedal animal. But we can all if we want to do a full scale restoration of what an animal looked like in the flesh, we would look at things like the muscle insertions that scars basically that are left on the bones that show where the muscles attached to the bone. And by looking at those muscle attachments, we can tell something about the size of the muscle and tell about which direction, how it was laying across the body. We study living relatives of dinosaurs like birds and crocodiles to learn about the muscles that they have and whether it's likely or not that they shared some of that same, what we call myology or muscle structure. Um, as far as the skin, putting the skin back on these things, we do have many examples now of skin impressions preserved in dinosaurs. You know, so we know, for example, that um, some of the horn dinosaurs uh, had big scales on them. They weren't feathered. They had big scales. And the reason we know that is because we found skin impressions alongside their skeletons. The same is true of the duck-billed dinosaurs. In fact, duck-billed dinosaur skin is fairly common to find that stuff. A lot of the examples that we're finding of the feathered dinosaurs are coming out of places like China, mostly China, but other parts of the world too. And there we find, instead of finding skin impressions, we find the impressions of feathers. So it's in that way that we're able to reconstruct their musculature and, and put some kind of integument on them, some kind of skin or, or covering, you know, feathers. But that's only in hindsight they were able to do that after, after almost 200 years of finding fossils. It's just a matter of slowly building up that picture. Okay. And there are many, many more species about which we know very little. We know very little about what they look like, but hopefully in another 100 years you can ask me and I'll, I'll be able to get <laughs> the answer. Okay, well, I think that's all of the questions. So, yeah, that's pretty much everything that I had for today. So thank cool. you very much. for. It's been a time. slice. Nice chatting with you, Emma. Yeah, um, it was very nice to meet you. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight. Finally, Gigi's teams are back to training and competition is set to continue. Next week, OUA teams will get to continue with their regular seasons, including the basketball teams, who are both 6-0. The teams have had seven of their games postponed, and on February 11th, the teams will match up against Queens for their first competition of the year. The women's team has had their way with their opponents starting the year off with a 76-52 win over York and going into the break after taking down Toronto 78-43. On the men's side, the GGs have yet to deal with much of an offensive challenge. The team leads the league in steals and forced turnovers. Not to mention, the team is ranked third nationally. The GGs have welcomed exciting new talent, and so far, it's definitely working well for them. Make sure to check out my GG's basketball update to find out more stats and details about the teams this year. 
It would be wrong to talk about sports without acknowledging what uprooted sports media this week. Tom Brady has announced his retirement. On his own terms this time, and in an Instagram post, he wrote a heartfelt message acknowledging those who impacted his career, his love for football, and also the importance of his family. Even though the Rams took down Tom Brady and the Buccaneers this postseason, the Super Bowl game is sure to be exciting. There are many players in the Rams lineup who are due for their Super Bowl rings, but it's really hard not to like Joe Burrow and the Bengals squad. But I'll dive into that next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Shout out to our two staff writers, Shaley Shaw and Gabrielle Musechka. It's always a roaring good time with Emma Williams. Jasmine McKnight has the biggest following out of any of us. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week.